Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today A look at several kidnapping cases from the 1970s, including one case where Scott met the defendant 20 years after the kidnapping occurred. She threw a refrigerator at Scott's partner Officer Maxwell, during a domestic violence call for service. Background Music Track Unspoken by Mew Scott, we're recording. Thank you, Victoria, for starting us out and running the control board for us again. This is your host for Felon File, Scott Lunsford, as Victoria said, and we are a look at crimes, punishments, issues, law enforcement, actions, and various things, the good guys, the bad guys, the crazy guys, the unusual guys, all involving around criminal justice and crime and punishment in the Appalachian Mountains and beyond there. We're coming to you today from the International Recording Studio at Scratch Ankle, North Carolina, west of West Asheville and east of Inca. Today's Shade of Blue discussion for Fallon File, we're going to look at kidnapping. Now, other than a topic for a Law & Order episode, kidnapping is, of course, a very serious subject. Being removed or moved against your will and detained is a very serious crime. can have serious mental health ramifications for a victim, as well as other issues. We're all familiar with, this, what, with what is referred to as the Stockholm Syndrome where you start identifying with your captors, in some cases become part of your captors. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, general definition of the crime of kidnapping might be unlawfully seizing and carrying away a person by force, seizing and detaining a person against their will and not allowing them to leave. Now, the law of kidnapping is really difficult to define exactly because it varies, of course, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Most states and federal kidnapping statutes define the term of kidnapping very vaguely, uh, leaving the course to fill in the detail. A lot of states have different, different definitions, of course, for what is kidnapping. In the state of North Carolina, if you transport a underage minor in a motor vehicle conveyance from point A to point B without the express consent of the parent or guardian of that juvenile, you're basically doing what's referred to as third-degree kidnapping or the legal definition in the state of North Carolina of felonious restraint. You can be a 16-year-old with your driver's license and you take your 15-year-old girlfriend for a little joyride without mom or dad 
being aware that this is what's going on, and lo and behold, you've picked up a felonious restraint charge, a felony, that can lead to you being having to be registered as a sex offender at 16. Not very cool. One of the things I tried to highlight to my students when I was a City of Asheville school resource officer, uh, the young people that were in high school and of age to drive, to be very, very careful about transporting other individuals in their in their cars. Most of the time, a kidnapping occurs, of course, when a person without lawful authority physically moves another person without that other person's consent or, or like I said a while ago, the consent of the person in charge of that individual, parent, guardian, custodian, etc. Now, with the intent to use the abduction in connection with some other nefarious objective. Now, under the model penal code, a set of exemplary criminal rules fashioned by the American Law Institute and used by lawyers throughout the United States, kidnapping occurs when any person is unlawfully and non-consensually transported and held for certain purposes. That could be a ransom, a reward, robbery, facilitating the commission of another felony. Now, of course, kidnapping laws in the United States come from common law developed by the court system in, in England over a very long period of time. Now, we've done a few podcasts already on felon foul, on notable or forgotten kidnapping incidents, and there are some that are more memorable and law changing as well and changing in how law enforcement, the community, and the court systems deal with kidnapping issues and really how society functions and acts. A good example of that is the Lindbergh kidnapping. Charles Lindbergh, his son was kidnapped and later murdered. And this brought in the Federal Bureau of Investigation, federal charges. It changed some of the laws that we deal with on a local basis and on a federal basis and how people think about watching their kids. That was a biggie. In 2010, the U.S. Department of Justice reported 200,000 cases of parental kidnapping. Now, these comprise most domestic and international abductions. In reviewing FBI status reports, they state that fewer than 350 people under the age of 21 have been abducted by strangers in the United States between 2010 and 2017. Even just one of those is a serious situation. The feds estimate about 50,000 people reported missing in 2000 who were younger than 18. And that has gone up dramatically from 2001. Only about 100 cases per year can be classified as abductions by strangers. A lot of those for young people, individuals that are younger than 18, are self-done. They've walked away from a group home, they've ran away from a family, etc. And that causes other issues and problems. In 1972, a young man by the name of Stephen Steiner was kidnapped while he was walking home from school. 
He ended up being raised by a, the person that kidnapped him for seven years. That was until the individual who kidnapped him, a Mrs. Parnell, ended up abducting another child, a Timmy White, in 1980. And the two boys are actually able to escape on March 1st, 1980, and get to safety. Parnell ended up being criminally charged for the two abductions. In 1974, Anna Waters disappeared from her backyard. Now that one is an abduction by, assumed to be by her parent, and she has never been found since 1974. Colleen Stan, in the 1970s, she was kidnapped while she was hitchhiking in California. She ended up being tortured and sexually abused for over seven years until her kidnapper's wife actually helped her escape in 1984. And of course, we can't forget the one of the famous cases of kidnapping in this time period of the 1970s. Patricia Campbell Hurst, Patty Hurst. She was kidnapped at 19 years of age from where she was going to college at the time. Today, she is an author and an actress. She was the granddaughter of American publishing giant power player William Randolph Hearst, the publishing giant. In 1974, she was kidnapped by, this, by the Seminese Liberation Army, the SLA. She was found and arrested 19 months later after she was abducted. At this time, she was thought she was no longer a victim, but was a fugitive wanted on serious crimes committed with other members of the SLA, including one bank robbery where they have her on film holding a gun while doing the robbery. Now, her attorney at the time said, if you look closely at the video, she's actually being covered by other individuals and that her firearm that she was carrying was actually unloaded. But there is also the question in that case of the Stockholm Syndrome. At her trial, the prosecution suggested that Patty Hearst had joined willfully the SLA on her own. However, she testified that she had been raped, threatened with death, and held captive, and was locked in closets, denied food, was, was physically and psychologically abused, and in 1976, she ended up being convicted of the crime of bank robbery and given a sentence of 35 years in prison. This ended up later being reduced to seven years, her sentence being commuted by President Jimmy Carter. And also later, she got her civil rights back, the ability to vote, hold office, whatever, when she was pardoned by President Bill Clinton. Now, two months after her release from prison, Patty Hearst married Bernard Lee Shaw, who passed away, unfortunately, at the age of 78, I believe, in 2013. The interesting thing about Shaw was that he was a police officer who had been 
assigned as her security detail during her time on bail when he was acting as security for uh, as part of her security detail to make sure she stayed safe make sure she got to court and make sure she didn't disappear they ended up getting married they had several children together they were together up until he passed away in 2013. Uh, she became involved in several foundations and charities that worked with children, uh, AIDS crises, and other activities. And she's also an active member in several other fundraising activities, mostly for children and other good causes. Now, the SLA are widely regarded by law enforcement in the United States as pretty much the first domestic terrorist group to come on the scene of the political left side in modern times. Another kidnapping I'd like to bring to light, the 1974 kidnapping of Jack Tinch in Kingsport, New York. This resulted in one of the largest ransoms being paid in the United States up until that time. But a follow-up trial after a conviction of a suspect led up to the person of interest, for lack of a better term, being released and a lawsuit that led to a very high financial compensation for the primary suspect. The victim was 34 years old when he was abducted in his driveway after being held, bound in chains, taped handcuffed and located in the closet of an apartment in the Bronx for seven days. He was released and exchanged for $750,000 in ransom money. In today's economy, you're looking at over $4 million. In 2013, the crime was listed as one of the most notorious crimes on Long Island. And the case was also cited in a 1975 New York Times article indicating that kidnappings had increased over the previous 10 years. Actually, it was Jack's older brother, Buddy, who was the original target of kidnapping, and the kidnappers apparently snatched the wrong guy. But ransom was paid. And today we don't know where that money went. Another young lady... Suzanne Savakis, when she was located, was going by the name of Tanya Hughes. She ended up being killed in an apparent hit-and-run incident in 1990. Investigation of that hit-and-run discovered following her death that her husband, who was actually much older, was not her husband. DNA testing determined they were not biological relatives. The person of interest in the hit and run, Floyd, gave a lot of inconsistent stories regarding how she came to be in his custody. Floyd was the prime suspect in her death. Now her true identity remained a mystery until 2014 when modern DNA testing confirmed that she was actually Sharon Marshall actually confirmed that the dead lady was Suzanne Marie Savakis. Floyd, the guy that pretended to be her husband, 
was actually married to our victim's mother. When she was sentenced to a 30-day stint in, in the county jail for a minor crime, he was left to care for her four children while she was locked up. Now, after she did her time and got released, she went looking for her kids and Floyd and could not find them. Two of the children were located being placed with social services, but Suzanne and her younger brother weren't found. As a matter of fact, what happened to the brother is still a mystery. The mother attempted to file kidnapping charges, but the local police declined, or at least the district attorney's office at that time in that location declined, saying that the child's stepfather had parental rights over the children and he could take them if he wanted to because mother had signed the rights over when she went to jail. Kind of scary, isn't it? I worked a case very similar to that myself, and we'll talk about that particular case later and the ramifications that revolved around it at another Felony File podcast. Another child kidnapping case that received a lot of attention at the time, but it's pretty much forgotten about today, was the case of Robert Greenlease Jr., a six-year-old young man from Kansas City, Missouri. He was the victim of a kidnapping and a homicide in the late 1950s. His father, Robert Greenlease Sr., was a multimillionaire car dealer, and a ransom demand payment at that time was the largest in American history, and Bobby um, was the largest requested ransom made in history up until the late 1950s. Kidnapper Bonnie Headley testified when she was caught that from the moment on, when she first met uh, young Robert, he was very trusting. She showed up at his school, a Catholic private school, posing as his aunt to take him to his mother, who she told school administrators was in the hospital recovering from a heart attack. When young Robert was brought to her, he simply took her hand and left with her and did everything he was told to do. A ransom of $600,000 was requested. In today's dollars and cents, $5.8 million. Greenlease was desperate to find his son. He held off the police and the FBI and wanted to just pay the money and make the whole thing go away and get his son back. And that is what he did. At least what he did. He paid the ransom. Now later, two police officers, a Lieutenant Lewis Shoulders and a patrolman, Elmer Dolan, told the grand jury that they were only able to find 300000 of the money and that they had turned that full amount over to authorities when they arrested the two kidnappers. Now, this ended up being a lie. Lieutenant Shoulders had taken half of the 600000 from the kidnappers at the time of their arrest. Both officers were convicted of perjury 
and Shoulders was found guilty on April 15, 1954, and given three years. And he ended up passing away in jail on May 12, 1962, my birthday. Officer Dolan, his partner, was convicted in 1954 and sentenced to two years. Dolan later maintained that he perjured himself and got into the whole situation because he was more afraid of Lieutenant Shoulder than he was of going to prison. He later received a pardon from President Lyndon Johnson. Now, Greenlee's kidnappers, despite the ransom being paid, they had no intention of returning him to his family. And before the ransom demands were even made, he had already been killed. Carl Hall and, and Bonnie Hetty were condemned to death and later executed in Missouri's gas chamber in December of 1953. Hetty ended up being the third woman ever to be executed by U.S. federal authorities. Another 1970s kidnapping was that of Virginia Piper, the wife of Kenneth Piper, the vice president of Motorola Radio Systems. She was kidnapped while gardening outside her home in Minnesota, and the press had a field day with that, and it scared a lot of people. She was held against her will and chained to a tree for two nights in Jay Cook State Park near Duluth, Montana. A ransom of $1 million cash, and looking at $2,021, that would be $6.336 million, according to Google, and the kidnappers called an unconnected person once they received the ransom and told them of her location. Shortly afterwards, the FBI located Piper chained to the tree and she was released and went home to her family. Kidnapping, of course, received national attention because of the prominence of the victim and her husband. The time that it occurred, right in the middle of the day, the location that it occurred, a large estate where one would think she would have been safe in her front yard. At the time, when the arrest was made of two men who were eventually charged with the kidnapping, and the thing about it is they were charged just days before the statute of limitations expired on the crime and were initially found guilty. They were acquitted, though, on appeal in 1979. And since the statute of limitations had expired on that particular crime, they were never tried again. Now, it should be noted that the money that was paid, the million dollars that was paid for ransom for Miss Virginia Piper, only $4,000 of that ransom money that was paid to the kidnappers was ever recovered. Still quite a bit of change left around out there floating. Yeah, that might make a good novel. Or at least a good treasure hunt. Now let's go a little closer home. Well, at least my home. Here in western North Carolina. Asheville, North Carolina was not immune to the kidnapping crisis that was hitting the rest of the country uh, in the 1970s. The activities always got a lot of media attention 
and there's no doubt that that spawned a lot of ideas for copycat crimes. It looked like there was big money in it, so a lot of people are going to give it a shot. And the news and a lot of fiction accounts in TV and in the movies help push that concept or that idea that, you know, we'll just kidnap somebody, get the money, and everything will be cool. On August 10th, 1974, about 1.30 in the morning in Asheville, North Carolina, a Mr. Carl Messer was driving west on Patton Avenue, approaching the expressway. He had just gotten off work and was going home. As Messer turned down the ramp to the expressway, he reported that he saw a stout woman step out in front of his car, waving his arms. Messer later identified this person as the defendant, ID'd her as Greta Gordon. Messer stopped his car and rolled down his window. He attempted to find out what was wrong. After all, he'd been flagged down. He wanted to see if he could help what was going on. The figure didn't respond any comments or calls or offers of help. Mr. Messer put the car in park and he got out of his car to go see what was wrong and how he could help. Almost immediately, he was struck from behind by somebody and knocked out unconscious. Now waking up, an hour or so later, he found that his eyes had been taped closed. His hands were tied behind his back, and he was being carried by somebody up the stairs at an apartment building. Now once upstairs in this apartment, he was robbed of $85 in cash, two payroll checks for $85 each, a 23-jewel Bolivia watch, and a Zippo cigarette lighter, all taken from his person. Now, while all this was going on, he was able to hear the voices of two women and a man very distinctively as they stood over him. The voices of one of the women he later identified as the woman who had flagged him down. Now, we'll get into how he knew it was this person. After all, he was blinded by the tape over his eyes. While in this apartment, his pants legs were cut off and lighted cigarettes were applied to his lips, his back, and his private areas in an apparent attempt to get Messer to sign or agree to sign the payroll checks. Also, I'm sure out of meanness, apparently, as the three kidnappers laughed and joked about his situation. Messer was also cut on his chest and his hip with a knife. Doctors testified in court and stated that the cut on his hip required 49 stitches. Now, that's a long cut. Around 5.30 a.m., Messer was picked up and carried out of the apartment with his eyes taped shut still and his hands tied behind his back. Reaching the foot of the stairs and the front door of the apartment, the three individuals that were with him stopped and made comments as a car drove by. Messer was shoved down behind a nearby short wall near the door to the stairwell of the apartment. And while there behind this wall, he was able to remove the tape from his eyes by rubbing his face on the ground and forcing the tape off. Now able to see, 
and with several street lights being on nearby, he was able to rise up and he saw once more the woman who had flagged him down. She was later identified by police as 19-year-old Greta Gordon. She was standing just five feet away from him. He was also later to make a connection between her voice and her person. She was standing, like I said, about five feet away. The other two were also there. He could hear them. He could hear all three of them, but he was not in a position where he felt he could safely raise up and look around and look for them and then possibly able to later identify them. Seeing his chance, Messer jumped up, went over the short wall that he was stashed behind with his hands still tied behind his back, but now able to see where he was going, he ran through Hillcrest apartment complex to Hill Street, where he was able to flag down a passing motorist. At the time in 1974, as it is today in 2021, there is only one drive into that apartment complex, and that was across a bridge that spanned the main highway. Getting help, and taken away by a passing driver, the police were called and Messer was taken to the hospital. Using the information from the victim, a lineup that was done, Miss Greta Gordon was identified as one of the people involved in the kidnapping and the assaults. She went to court and Greta's public defender in court, Attorney Harrell, and those of you who are listening from the Western North Carolina location, yes, this is Judge Harrell before he became a judge. I've testified many times before the late Judge Harrell myself. As a matter of fact, he was the judge on the bench when I and another officer, while waiting to testify on a separate case that was not being heard yet, when a defendant pulled out a pistol out of his pocket in Judge Harrell's courtroom and took his own life, falling directly in front of both myself and the other officer. I was a plainclothes detective at the time and the guy ruined a brand new pair of suede hush puppy shoes uh, when he landed at my feet. Anyway, back to our main story. Gordon attorney Judge Harrell, well, he wasn't a judge then, he was a public defender, pointed out that yes, she did live in the apartment complex, but she claimed to have never seen Messer before until she was arrested. Now, on another side note, when she was arrested for the kidnapping and the assaults, she ended up assaulting the police officers that went to pick her up and serve the warrants on her, injuring a couple of them. She claimed to have never had Messer in her apartment, and her attorney brought that up in the appealment as well. It was, she also testified to the fact that that particular night of the kidnapping, she never left her own apartment on the night in question. Now, the cases were submitted to a jury on charges of kidnapping, common law robbery, assault on a law enforcement officer, assault inflicting serious injury, the jury returned verdicts of guilty of kidnapping and common law robbery and all other charges. Now on appeal, 
Attorney Harrell argues that it was an error to allow the prosecuting witness, Mr. Messer, to testify about the acts of violence without first fully establishing the identity of the perpetrator. He did not see the person that was assaulting him at the time, but identified her later. Now, the courts found this invalid before uh, describing what took place. The prosecuting witness identified Greta as the person who had flagged him down. He also identified her as the person he saw from the wall that he was hiding behind or that he was placed behind and also connected the voice he heard when he was being assaulted with the person he saw. The courts found Attorney Harold's arguments invalid. Before describing what took place, the prosecuting witness identified Greta as the person who had flagged him down. The next argument that the attorney had was that the evidence does not support a conviction of kidnapping. He quoted State versus Knight, a 1958 court case where the defendant Knight suspect had dragged his victim into the woods for the purpose of removing evidence of a homicide. And in that particular case, the kidnapping part of that particular trial was upheld and dismissed. But in this appellate court, they, the judges didn't buy the state versus night argument from the 1958 trial. After all, the victim was carried to the apartment for the purposes of committing the offense of robbery and assault. Another case that was brought up from the more recent case by the attorney, that would be State versus Roberts, where the distance a victim was pulled in a kidnapping had to be over 80 to 90 feet. The requirement of carrying away was not satisfied in that particular case from State versus Roberts. But in Greta's case, it was because not only was he put into his own car and transported in his vehicle to the Hillcrest Apartments, he was later also jerked out of the back seat, toted up on his shoulder and carried upstairs. Attorneys for the defendant also argued that the charge of common law robbery should never have gone in and been used. The evidence was sufficient to show that the defendant was present. But the judges found that the evidence was sufficient and it did show that the defendant was there based on voice identification and later visual identification and the fact that the victim identified her as the person that flagged him down. The appealment was overruled. Greta was found guilty on all charges and given four years active time in the North Carolina Women's Correctional Center in Raleigh. Now, out of curiosity, I tried to find some background history on Mr. Messer. Previous arrests, indications of other crimes and incidents in Western North Carolina that he may have been involved with. Perhaps he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Perhaps maybe he was giving false information about how he met Greta. I could not find anything like that. He had a clean record, no criminal charges ever that I was able to locate. His name never showed up in any newspaper articles when I researched them except for his obituary. 
Apparently, Mr. Messer was just unfortunately in the wrong place at the wrong time going home from work when he stopped for what he thought was a lady in distress, and he stopped to help. Thank you for listening. If you have thoughts on this podcast and would like to share them with us, you can contact Victoria and myself through the felonfile.com webpage or mail us directly at felonfile at gmail.com. If you, of course, would be interested in, in copies of my books, fiction and nonfiction works, you can find them at Amazon.com as well as Barnes & Noble. Don't forget to check out our stuff page if you do go to our website. You can pick up a felon file t-shirt or a coffee mug. And nothing says leave this person alone than somebody drinking their morning coffee out of a felon file coffee mug. If you want to be left alone in the morning at work, pick up one of our coffee mugs. Better yet, pick up a coffee mug and a t-shirt. That says it double. Now, if you've got a good idea for a Shade of Blue podcast story that others might find of interest, send us a message. Send us that information. You can also support Felon File Podcast and keeping us commercial free by buying Victoria or me a cup of coffee on the link to the website. The link is at the bottom of the page. Can't miss it. Just click on the picture of the coffee mug the one with coffee in it at the very bottom of the page, not the one that says felon file on it. But back to the important things in life. In the coming weeks, be safe and be secure. Don't let the shade of blue stories scare you off from doing good things and doing the right thing for other people. It's still the best thing we can do for ourselves and our community and everybody else. So if you have the opportunity, do the right thing. Help somebody out. And sometimes you don't have to lay hands. It's just helping somebody out by being there and listening. Just like you're doing today. I appreciate you all. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you all later. Remember, next Saturday, 7 o'clock, another episode of Felon File. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to the Felon File Podcast with your host, Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast, or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these websites. Be sure to check out the stuff page on the website. Pick up a Felon File t-shirt, or coffee mug. You can also support the Felon File podcast by buying us a coffee from the link on the website. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. Two, one, end. Background track unspoken by MewSoundCloud.com. Mew Music promoted by Free. Stock Music.com Creative. Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. Creative Commons.org.